an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, three former Seattle mayors offer advice for newly inaugurated Mayor Bruce Harrell. Never, ever read the comments in an anonymous comment section. And then, from the archives, the humble 1970s origins of the Northwest Avalanche Center. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, which is a quick look at the stories behind the names of local places. And this week, he uh, goes into the 19th century origins of a nickname for eastern Washington and northern Idaho. Felix. Martin Day, yeah, the nickname is Inland Empire. This term Ah, probably peaked decades ago, but it's still something that anyone who's lived here long enough has certainly heard before. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like you to read in your finest baritone this description from a history book called The Inland Empire, published in the 1920s. Okay, this here? Yeah. In the basin between the Rockies and the Cascades, a region known as large as France, nature framed a broad theater for human enterprise and furnished it with an abundance of resources, which for a long time stood unrecognized. Across the empty stage passed explorers and fur traders. Missionaries came and labored with small success to open the eyes of the natives to the uses of soil and water and timber, as well as to teach them religion. There's always that religion part in there. Um, Yes. I saw a Facebook post the other day from a history grad student at Eastern Washington University in Cheney named Jake Ream. He posted a question on a Spokane history page wondering if anyone knew the origins. There's a lot of speculation that it had something to do with boosterism, that notion of promoting a city or a region to get more people to move there and make it easier for real estate speculators to profit. Now, it didn't take long for Jake Green to track down the person who's generally believed to be the originator of the phrase Inland Empire. And this describes parts of Washington, Idaho, even British Columbia. Jake found the answer in that same book you read from a moment ago. The guy who gets the credit is Massachusetts-born missionary, journalist, educator, and railroad booster, the Reverend George Henry Atkinson. He came to Oregon in the 1840s, you know, and he he was aware of the kind of the climate of, you know, eastern Washington, Oregon, Idaho. And he described it as a vast inland empire. Now, whether or not that was the first time that term had actually been applied to the Northwest, the inland Northwest, no one knows. Atkinson wrote a series of pro-Northwest newspaper articles in the 1870s. They were compiled and issued as a pamphlet sponsored by the Northern Pacific Railroad and called the Northwest Coast. It's not clear if he profited in any way. Um, This was when boosters around here were trying to generate interest in getting the northernmost of the surveyed transcontinental railroad routes built. They'd already built a railroad to California. They really wanted a railroad up here. He went to New York and gave talks to the Chamber of Commerce there. He really got around. He was a busy guy. His day job was being a preacher in Oregon City. He's also considered the father of Oregon's public schools. Now, in 1878, a newspaper called the Inland Empire was founded in the Dalles down in Oregon, and that's when the term seems to have really caught on. Atkinson died in Portland in 1889 when he was almost 70. Now, there's part of California east of Los Angeles, also known as the Inland Empire. That might have been named a bit earlier. It's really hard to tell. And I didn't know this before, but Illinois has been known in the past as the Inland Empire State, kind of a riff on the Hmm. the New York uh, nickname. And lastly, there's a David Lynch film called Inland Empire, which has no relation to anything other than sort of rabbits, sorts of weird David Lynch things. 
And, uh, of course, if anybody out there knows a different story or more details, we'd love to hear about it. Just text me or send me an email. And we'll have some great maps posted up at My Northwest very shortly. So as usually it was is real estate promoters trying to make something sound grander than it really was. You know, and I was thinking about that because usually if some place is great, you don't need a nickname for it. Like there's not really a nickname for the North, for the Puget Sound area. Mm-hmm. But for the Eastern Washington, you have to come up with a nickname for it. That sort of says something about kind of, <laughs> you know what I mean, about, about an area's yes. innate ability to attract people. Not to disparage anyone, but you know what no, I mean. No, of course not. Felix Spinell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Have a good weekend, Felix. You too. Thanks, Dave. Serving greater Seattle. Bruce Harrell officially took office early Saturday as the new year began. Now, in the days and months ahead, he's going to get all kinds of specific policy advice from experts in the various fields. A lot of people trying to influence his decision-making and things like public safety and transportation and everything in between. But there's really only a handful of people who have been in the mayor's shoes. I reached out to a trio of recent Seattle City chief executives to get their advice from Mayor Harrell as he begins his first full week in office. Over the weekend, I had long conversations with Charlie Royer, Greg Nichols, and Mike McGinn. We're going to go in reverse chronological order here and start out with Mike McGinn. McGinn was Seattle mayor from 2010 to 2014, and he says no matter how busy Mayor Harrell feels he is in these first few weeks on the job, he must talk to the media. When I first took office, I I felt like, look, I'm, I got a you know, I got a big deficit. I had to cut 6% from the city budget. It was the recession. Unemployment was high. I had to put to, I had a lot of internal work to do. And I think a mistake I made was like, you know, to the media was like, can you guys like lay off a little while? I got a lot of work to do here. I don't have time to just meet with you all the time. Right. And I think that, and I think, the, you know, the media doesn't like it when, when you do that. They get mad. They get mad and they start reacting a certain way. So, you know, do more of that, uh, Mayor Howell. You do have to keep meeting with them, but but I, I do hope the media recognize a little bit how much pressure is on a new mayor and also that um, it, it takes time to build momentum. And McGinn says about that momentum, it's it's really critical to build it, in which given the circumstances, this might be tricky. And I think it's going to be particularly difficult for Mayor Howell. He's got a lot of interim directors. I honestly don't think that the prior mayor left uh, left him with a lot of momentum on a bunch of different issues. She had, you know, was moving on. And the mayor and, I, and the mayor before Mayor Durkin also, you know, <laughs> was distracted by the end of his term. So I think there's a lot of work to do to kind of rebuild the 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 the, the muscles and sinews and strength within city government. And I don't want to be negative. There, there are people down there, down there in the engine room of city government who've been keeping this thing working through mayor after mayor, and they're doing their best. But when you can get a mayor providing some focus and clarity to everybody else, uh, they can do a lot more. So uh, I think he's got a big job ahead of him to just get city government kind of working as effectively as the public wants it to work. It'll never be effective enough, but more effective than it's been. And now Greg Nichols was mayor of Seattle from 2002 to 2010. He says Mayor Harrell has to have a thick skin and he must step carefully online. Never, ever read the comments in an anonymous uh, comment section. Just don't do it. It is not of any value uh, to you and can only uh, upset your family. (laughs) So... Uh, so you do. You need to have a thick skin. You have to be able to take uh, those barbs, uh, and they're going to come. They should come. Uh, our elected officials should, uh, you know, be open to uh, criticism. Just when they get to be anonymous and obnoxious, 
ignore those, uh, but try and take the others to heart. Uh, uh, but do it in a way where you don't respond angrily or uh, with a short fuse. Now, Mayor Nichols also famously tangled with a snowstorm, or actually a series of snowstorms that hit the city in December 2008 and that some say actually cost him a third term. He learned a few things from that experience that might be helpful to Mayor Harrell. You know, I like snow much better now that I'm not mayor. Uh, (laughs) I I can enjoy it again. I can tell you that every mayor in the country, Uh. when snow gets in the forecast, uh, has uh, cold shivers go up and down (laughs) their spine. And that was true for me. That uh, was a storm that uh, we, you know, it's actually three storms in a row that we just were not able to deal with. We had people who worked really hard to try and uh, keep up, but we are, our systems were overwhelmed. Did you ever regret that B plus comment about the snowstorm? <laughs> I hate to say this because I did not complain about the press. I was saying that the workers deserve to be plus for effort. Yeah. Uh, not that we deserve to be plus for for our uh, result because it was not good. But the people were working 24-7 to try and keep up with the storms. And uh, that's how I meant it. It was taken out of context, which happens. And, you know, so yeah, say la vie. I, I have never I've never given myself a letter grade since. <laughs> Now, Charlie Royer is Seattle's only three-term mayor. He was in office from 1978 to 1990. He says that good working relationships with the city council and the media are key. Don't criticize the council, even in private, with your department heads. And don't engage in bad-mouthing the council with uh, citizens or with uh, others who have some case against the council or something, a gripe or something. Um, because they they know it when you're doing that. It's almost like an animal kind of sense that they they sense that you uh, have been talking about them or they hear about it, and and that will negate any uh, entreaties you make with the council or any any approach you make to the council to try to to work with them. And so don't don't engage in that, and certainly don't engage in beating up the press uh, for something that, and don't be quoted in the, in the papers or on TV that, uh, you know, the, the media don't understand or that uh, they're out to get me or whatever. You know, above all, all three of these guys see being mayor of Seattle as the coolest job in the world. It should be something to be really enjoyed, not in a glib or oblivious way, but in a way that inspires Seattleites and city employees. Charlie Royer says he gave two other mayors who succeeded him some feedback on this front. Uh, one was the late Paul Shell, and then also Ed Murray. Paul and Ed, I told them both that when they came to City Hall in the morning, they looked like they were going in for a root canal or something. <laughs> and they, uh, they, they didn't seem to realize they had the best job in America, yeah. which is the mayor's job, that they were the closest... Uh, thing to the people in government that people would ever experience uh, and that uh, people wanted to like their mayor and uh, they wanted to see the mayor having some fun with a job in a fun city, the likes of which, uh, you know, you, uh, you couldn't find in, in many other cities. I want to thank Mike McGinn, Greg Nichols and Charlie Royer for returning my calls. Uh, they certainly don't have to and they're all good sports. 
who have the best interests of the city as a whole at heart. And I think, like everybody, they're pulling for the new mayor, Bruce Harrell, to succeed, as I think we all are. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, it was something of a shoestring operation when the Northwest Avalanche Center was founded in the 1970s. And here it is winter, which means snowshoeing and skiing in the Cascade backcountry. And it also means a team of meteorologists keeping an eye on the weather to make sure you don't get buried in an avalanche. Our resident historian, Felix Bennell, dug into the origins of the specialized weather forecasters known as the Northwest Avalanche Center, founded 45 years ago. Felix is brought to us by the King County Library System. Good morning. Morning, Dave. Yeah, the Northwest Avalanche Center, or NWAC, as some people call it, a forecasting and public education partnership between the National Weather Service, the Forest Service, Washington State Parks, um, Washington State DOT, and the outdoor recreation industry. It's a pretty decent-sized operation now. There's about 15 staff people with an office in North Bend. The origins trace back to the early 70s. Individual forest rangers and ski area operators had been dealing with mountain weather for decades, and avalanches had always been a threat, of course. Now, a snow scientist was working at the UW named Ed LaChapelle, he was engaged to do some avalanche research for the old Washington State Highway Department, and that led to the hiring of two newly minted PhDs for what was going to be a short-term project and who hoped they'd get a lot of chances to ski. Uh, one was Mark Moore. He'd go on to run the Northwest Avalanche Center for more than 30 years. The other was future King 5 meteorologist Rich Marriott. It actually came about because in the early 70s, backcountry usage was starting to pick up. But more importantly, I-90 through Sinoquamie Pass had been completed. There have been some avalanche problems with the construction of the, the highway itself. In fact, Franklin Falls Bridge actually was partially damaged by an avalanche that came down and hit it while they were doing construction. And they had to build barriers uphill to protect that bridge. They also had a couple of accidents that involved private passenger cars. And they had also just opened up the North Cascades Highway, I think, in 1969. And DOT wanted to be able to keep things open and keep them safe, needed more information to be able to even know when to do avalanche control at that point. You know, Richard wanted to work for NASA, but this was not long after the Apollo program had wound down. And, you know, I, I remember this time, the mid-70s, they're sort of like a golden age of science. Mm -hmm. All these young guys like Rich Marriott and Mark Moore with their big beards and their PhDs and all the answers, kind of not unlike their Richard Dreyfus character in Jaws. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of like down vests and stuff. And now the early days of the Northwest Avalanche Center were a bit of a shoestring operation. Early on, Rich Marriott and Mark Moore saw a need for more real-time data. So they installed automated weather instruments at key places in the Cascades, such as Stevens Pass. You know, places where they previously had to rely on once or twice daily human observers. And they did the work themselves. They had this one thing where there was a, a weather instrument at, at the chairlift number five. They had to dial in by phone and use this very early modem to get the data decoded and encoded. And so they were really creative about creating new kinds of remote reading temperature, snowfall, and wind instruments. And Mark Moore says sometimes they had to even improvise repairs. We had an anemometer that had three cups, and we lost one of the cups. So we cut a beer can in, in half and put the beer can on for one of the cups. And by God, it worked. I mean, it may have been slightly different, but it was still getting an idea about the wind. They had plenty of beer cans. <laughs> yeah, no shortage of those. And when they weren't in the field analyzing snow or fixing weather instruments, the office for the Northwest Avalanche Center was a couple of desks at the old Weather Service offices on Lake Union. That didn't go so well at first. The forecasters and the Weather Service did not like us. I mean, we were these hot shots from the University of Washington who were going to come and take their jobs. 
that was bad enough. But keep in mind, mid 70s, and both Mark and I looked like we'd just come out of the backcountry after two years. We had huge hair and huge beards. <laughs> and the first couple of years, there were very few of the forecasters who even speak to us. They, they want us. They want to have us deloused as we came. <laughs> now, but Mark Moore says that he and Rich, or maybe it was their data, eventually helped them win over even the crusty old weather service guys. Fortunately, we had a mentor within the National Weather Service, Bud Rainier, who had been the deputy meteorologist in charge of the National Weather Service in Seattle. He uh, fought for us to be accepted there and grudgingly even the old time forecasters accepted what we were doing because we were helping them out because they didn't have a lot of information at the time about what's happening in the mountains yeah i mean we take for granted now how much data you can get by just on your smartphone looking up certain mountain passes and stuff but it wasn't that way in the, in the mid-70s now the big focus with avalanche uh, research is always been about saving lives but that often translated into helping an agency like WashDOT manage their equipment for snow removal or avalanche control. Rich Marriott says that in the early days, that could be very humbling. There was this big storm headed towards us, and we were kind of really starting to understand some of the microclimates of the Cascades and such. In any event, I was forecasting, and DOT was taking the information and using it for the maintenance crews, and it looked like this big storm was coming in, and they, they had plows on standby, and... I mean, they were ready for this big dump. I think they got three flakes. And I was, I was humiliated. And I was just, I thought, this, I should just quit. Yeah, and the forecasting methods have improved substantially over the decades. The models can now predict many days in advance with pretty good uh, information. But Rich Marriott says there's always more opportunities for public education about avalanche danger. You can define the large scale, but getting it down into detail really depends on where the person travels. People will ski a slope and ski it and there'll be no problems and suddenly somebody skis in a different spot and it triggers you know so it's really important for people to be educated about avalanche danger and route finding and being able to recognize when the conditions are such that you really don't want to take a chance yeah and that's where the work of the northwest avalanche center um, has changed you know the focus has changed a bit over the years now they're just a little bit younger then a similar operation in Colorado. Colorado is where the most avalanche deaths occur each year. Alaska's second, Washington's third. Uh, the current director, Scott Shell, says the number of avalanche deaths each year in the state has been pretty flat for the past decade, an average of three a year. And while any death is a tragedy, the fact the number is flat, as the numbers of skiers and snowshoers have increased something like tenfold, that's a pretty big success. And NWAC is always about forecasting and science. But a huge part of the mission is public education. They do hundreds of safety talks each year, and those have all moved online, of course, during the pandemic. And they are a nonprofit. A big part of their budget comes from private donations uh, for, for just to support their annual work and kind of behind the scenes, but people depend on that information to be safe in the backcountry. Yeah, and it's so tempting. I used to do snowshoeing, and we'd go out, you know, Gold Creek, and yeah. uh, it's, it's incredibly freeing to have this landscape where you can walk basically uh, anywhere. But, you know, I've fallen into my share of tree holes, and uh, and I, I remember hiking with a partner along a slope and noting, noticing this. Oh, isn't this interesting? These little these little snowballs are rolling down the hillside. I realized <laughs> I'm about to become part of a news story here if we don't get the hell out. So oh, uh, I, I really um, I appreciate the uh, the work that they, they do. And uh, and just be careful there. It's it's gorgeous, but you have to remember that nature is out to kill you. <laughs> I'm convinced. Yeah, absolutely. Of that. And, and I like that false feeling snowshoes give you. It lets you walk up really steep hills. You can't yes. walk up in the summer. It's crazy. I, I love snowshoeing. My favorite wintertime sport. 
Felix Bennell, every Wednesday, Seattle's Morning News, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. I'm Felix Bennell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Yes, it's raining in Seattle, baby. Please can I come home? This is Bill Curtis inviting you to tune in to KIRO Felix will enlighten you.